Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we just want to ask that you bless these offerings. We ask that you would multiply them. And we just praise and thank you, Father. And we ask this in your precious Son, Lord Jesus' name. Amen. Turn you back over to Randy. We have this time to bring our prayer requests and praises before the Lord. So I just want to open it up to you in relation to any prayers or prayer requests that you have at this time. George. and uh, I got called and he did not make it through that auto accident 48 years old um, a family so his name is his name is Mark Price I ask that you pray for his family especially during this uh, this hard hardship that they're going through right now and I ask that you pray for me because um, it's very devastating for me uh, and I'm struggling so I ask that you help me to ask God to lead me uh, why this took place. Other prayer requests, praises. Please continue to pray for Diane, John, and their family. They had a kind of a trying experience this week. Joss went and ended up running away again. And then he was caught shoplifting. He was in jail for a little bit, and John got him back. But please pray for all of them. It's really a rough time for him. Yes, we will. Others, prayer requests, praises. Joanne. You already know what I'm going to say, but prayer for the missionaries. And then um, my daughter-in-law um, had a has some kind of health situation going on. I'll just say, pray for my daughter-in-law, Laura. Well, following up on George's remarks, uh, I have in my files at home a story about when we burned the mortgage for the Fall Creek Seventh-day Adventist Church Sanctuary some years ago. And I've asked the head elder if he would please schedule an event when we can burn the note for the event center when he gets it back, because I think those two events go together. And I want to thank all those who participated in the purchase of the sanctuary years ago and those who participated in this building that it may be to God's glory. I want to thank those who did the physical labor, the hands-on construction. Uh, and I remember seeing Steve Henton in our restroom one night trying to put up the grab bars that the county desperately wanted to have. And I want to thank those who did the heavy lifting with the finances. Both of those are equally important. So um, may God bless each one of you and have a Merry Christmas. Amen. Steve. I have a praise that I'm wanting to share. Um, we have uh, a couple of uh, ladies here who taught at Laurelwood at the uh, Gaston campus, and we invited them to come for our board meeting that we held on Tuesday, Thursday of this last week. And uh, so Edie Mulvihill is with us and Lynn Boyle Buskey. 
uh, and it's been a blessing to have them here. And um, we just asked for some, well, some opinions and thoughts regarding curriculum and and um, accounting and so forth. And and so we're grateful they're here. And the prayer request is that um, God would indeed. Um, well, we have another blessing. Uh, uh, Colby and his crew were able to get a boiler. Um, that was not quite as efficient, uh, more efficient. And we have some actually warm soil where tomato plants are growing at this time of year. So we're, we're, just, we're just really blessed in that respect and praising God for that. So we ask, the prayer request is that God's will be done with this ancient organization called Lorewood Academy. Yes, my mother graduated from Lorewood, and she celebrated her 88th birthday yesterday, Steve. So, not not going with ancient, but going with historic here. Others, prayer requests, praises. I just have a praise that we can be here today with our little baby. Where is he? He's back there. He's five and a half weeks now, so that's pretty cool. I'm just grateful. others this morning. Also, just so you know, um, if you're not a part of the church newsletter at this point, um, if you get George and Judy your email address, they will add you to that. And there's a list of prayer requests for the church each, well, actually twice a week that comes out. Um, My brother who had a stroke was on that list for a while, and now he's fully recovered. My other brother who was in the hospital last weekend and had to give it four pints of blood was on that prayer request list. There's lots of important prayer requests on that list that go out every week to remind you to pray for others throughout the week. And if you're not on that list, please join us in that list, and and George will make for sure Judy gets those. Right, George? I don't want to speak for George, but George says yes. Yes, if you write down your uh, email address on a piece of paper, you'll be added to that twice a week church newsletter that tells you what's coming up, what's happening, praises, prayer requests, etc. Yes, Joanne. Okay. One more prayer request. My brother, Coyle, um, had a stroke six months ago, and his leg is recovering, his arm is not. So please just pray. Yeah, see you while Yes. And I want to pray for, have you pray for my wife, Judy. That's why she's not here. So um, we just ask that you pray for her. She has uh, got a bad cold. So. Others, anyone else? Okay, I'd like to join you to, uh, to um, kneel as you're able as we pray at this time. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you asking for your presence here, for your Holy Spirit to fall upon each of us, to be baptized by that Holy Spirit, that we may see clearly that we may be united as a church family going forward, doing your will and following what you have planned for us, Lord. And Lord, we want to pray for Mark's family. And we want to pray.
pray for George at this time, that you be with him and you help them through this difficult time, O oh Lord. Guide them, protect them, show them your love and kindness through others, Lord. And Lord, we pray for Judy. We pray that you bring healing to her as she is not feeling well, Lord. We want to pray, Lord, for Diane, John, and their family. We want to especially lift up Josh as he's going through a difficult time, Lord. Please be with him and your will be done in his life. Lord, we pray for April and Lexi. We lift them up this morning before you that your will be done in their lives. And Lord, we pray for every single missionary, both here and abroad, that you be with them, that you give them the peace that passes all understanding today, that they may have the strength to continue to go forward, spreading the good news of your soon coming, Lord. We pray for Laura. We ask that you be with her and her health and her well-being, Lord. And Lord, we want to lift up this event center. Lord, it's not been that long ago that we were unsure about whether even we should start this project. But by your will and by your goodness, each one of us sit here today praising your name in this building. And Lord, it's not the building, but it's the people in it. It's your goodness that has been seen. It is your love that witnesses here. Let it continue to be a witness until you come again. Lord, we also want to thank you for Lorawood Academy, both past and present. We ask, O oh Lord, you've led in many ways. We've seen the opening, the closing, the opening and the closing of Lorawood, but yet it continues to go forward, producing fruits for you, Lord. And I pray that you be with the decisions that are being made now, that your will may be done and that you may be glorified. Lord, we want to thank you for babies, all of the babies, Lord. You have given us such wonderful blessings. To hear the sounds of them this morning shows us of your goodness and of your love. And we thank them, O oh Lord, because you, O oh Lord, set the example for us when you said, bring the little children unto me. Lord, we also want to lift up coil. We ask that you be with him and his family. We ask that you help his arm, Lord, that's not recovering well from the stroke. And Lord, in closing, I want to pray that your Holy Spirit may guide us as we listen to this message that you've given to James, Lord, that we may be prepared to go forward and take it into action, that we not only hear it, that we then do it, and then we preach it. Let your will be done. Come soon, Lord Jesus. Amen. Our scripture this morning is found in Galatians. Galatians 3, verse 10. Please turn with me. That's Galatians 3, verse 10. It says, For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. This time that praise team will have a song for us.
Good morning. Happy Sabbath. We're going to um, sing some praise songs, and if you're able, if you could stand and join us. See 
testing, testing. Good morning, church. Thank you, praise team. It's good to have Wiley and Raquel back among us. Blessings to little Atlas, beautiful little baby. You're a daddy now, Wiley. Everything has changed. Your world has changed. Nothing will be the same again. We are studying the book of Galatians. We're in Galatians chapter 3. We began there last week, or not last week, but the last time I was with you. That wasn't last week. Last week I was with my son in Loma Linda, soaking up 80-degree weather and blue sky. Coming back here from there was like coming to Alaska, seriously. But it's good to be home, always. And throughout chapters 1 and 2, we uh, discovered or learned about basically uh, Paul's um, burden to defend his apostolic calling and the gospel of grace which he preached. That's how the, the book of Galatians begins. And then we moved into um, Galatians chapter 3. We, we learned that uh, Paul was under strict scrutiny and heavy fire from the Judaizers. And those were believers, Christians, who had come out of Judaism, come out of the Hebrew faith, had accepted Christ as Savior, but still clung to some of the old covenant ideals or ways of approaching and relating to God. And they had come into Galatia and followed Paul in other churches, and they had sought to undermine what he was doing, what he was preaching, the gospel that he was advocating. And so this was the burden that Paul had was, first of all, to clarify that he was called of God to preach this message, and then to, to actually clarify the message he was preaching. And when we get into Galatians chapter 3, we began to understand in this chapter the folly or the foolishness of the Galatians. Now, Paul, I think, is using some pretty strong words there when he calls these people foolish. But that helps us, if you will, to understand the seriousness of the issue. For Paul to identify these believers as foolish tells us that there was a very serious issue being discussed here. This wasn't some little thing, by the side thing, side issue. This was major foundational issue. And the major thing that Paul is dealing with here in Galatians is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I think it's pertinent for us today because we're living in a time when that gospel is being, again, undermined, not just by maybe perhaps other religious affiliations, um, people who don't see things maybe the same way we do, but it's being undermined also by our own natural tendencies. We naturally tend to move in the direction that the Galatians were moving into, even without the Judaizers. We naturally tend to depend upon, to some degree or another, our works for salvation. So our sermon title this morning uh, is called The Curse of the Law. I wanted to call it actually uh, Spiritual Treason. But I thought, nah, that's a little bit too complicated. But the point is going to be the same. Uh, the phrase... The curse of the law comes right out of, the, out of this reading, our scripture reading, the curse of the law. And if we can identify what the curse of the law is, I think it's really going to help us to know the seriousness of the situation in Galatia and perhaps help us with our own spiritual walk 
with the Lord. So with that in mind, let's um, open with a word of prayer, and then we'll get right into our study this morning. Father in heaven, I just want to thank you again for this opportunity to study your word, and especially the gospel that was advocated, preached, and established by Paul to the Galatians. I thank you for the warnings he gave. I thank you for his uh, courage to be straightforward with the Galatians, to identify what they were doing as foolish. May we receive that same admonition this morning. May we also have our hearts knit to Christ in stronger bonds of union and love. Through this message, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's open our Bibles then to Galatians chapter 3. And we're going to start with verse 10 and understand what Paul is saying here. Um, We'll read the verses, then we'll go back through and we'll try to identify the points he's making. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse... As it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly, no one who relies on the law is justified before God because the righteous will live by faith. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, it says, The person who does these things will live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who has hung on a pole or a tree. He redeemed us in order that the blessings given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. All right, so this passage is really full of meaning for us. When you look at this phrase here, For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. What does Paul mean by that? What he means is that all who are observing the law as a means of going to heaven are under a curse. Now, why is that? Because, and he's quoting from the Old Testament now, because in the Old Testament, he's quoting from Deuteronomy 27 and verse 26. In the Old Testament, it says this, Cursed is everyone who does not uphold the words of this law by carrying them out. And then all the people said, Amen. So there are, in other words, if you're trying, if you are trying to be saved through the law, then the law demands two things. Number one, the law demands perfect obedience, perfect obedience. And number two, the law demands perfect obedience continually. You have to perfectly obey it and you have to perfectly obey it continually. And that's what Paul is referring to when he says, you're cursed if you're relying on the law. Because if you don't perfectly obey the law of God continually, you come under a curse. And that curse, I'm just going to say it in my own words here, that curse is not necessarily something that God brings to us. That curse is guilt. We walk in the guilt of transgression of God's law when we try through obedience to the law that, that can only be done through continual obedience always, when we try to continually obey the law, we come under guilt, the curse of guilt. We walk around guilty. Now, there's only one remedy for guilt, and that is Jesus Christ. And sometimes what we do is we try to put those two ways of salvation together. Now, one of them is not a genuine way of salvation. It's a man-made way of salvation. We try to perfectly obey the law. We come under guilt. We go to Jesus Christ to get our guilt cleansed, and then we go back and we try to perfectly obey the law again. <laughs> we just go back and forth, back and forth, you know, like a, like a, like a ball in a, in a 
uh, I was going to say a ping pong ball, but you know, in those, uh, oh, I used to play pinball. That's it. Those pinball things where they're just going against the bumper, against the bumper, back and forth. Flip, boom, flip, boom, flip, boom, bing, 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 bing. Back and forth we go. And God would have us realize that salvation through obeying the law, through perfect obedience to the law, is not possible for us. The remedy is not that we would try to do this and then go and get grace and forgiveness for not making it and then try to do this and go and get... The remedy for us is to stay right over here with Christ, the one who has perfectly obeyed the law, the only person, the only perfect man who ever lived. So... If we fall once, basically we failed. We're done. We're finished. And that's basically what happened with Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve fell, and that failure was passed on to us. So the first time that Adam and Eve sinned, they came under the curse of the law. And their performance now became unsatisfactory for their relationship with God. And Adam and Eve are our parents, and they passed on to us that generic inheritance. There's nothing we can do to actually satisfy the claims of the law anymore. We are complete failures when it comes to obedience. But, Paul says in verse 11 of Galatians 3, Clearly no one who relies on the law is justified before God because the righteous will live by faith. I love this. What Paul is referring to here is basically two things. Number one, it's evidence from our own experience that we, if we're honest with ourselves, can never be perfect. All of us are coming short in performance when it comes to our own good works of God's standard of law. All of us are coming short of God's standard of law. And I want to say it this way, because sometimes when we think of God's standard of law, we think of you know, all the things we're supposed to do. But I'd like to say it this way. I'd like to say God's law is love. That's the essence of God's law. And all of us are failing to love the way that God wants us to love. To love. Just to love people. Just think about the person that you like the least. Because there's someone in your life. Maybe there's more than one person. (laughs) There's someone there that you don't like very much, that you don't love very much. And you realize that you're falling short of God's ideal, God's law, the principles of God's government, because God loves all people, all people all the time. And that's what he wants for us. That's what he wants. So we fail, number one. Number two, it's evidence also from scripture. It's not just evident in our lives. We know it in our lives too. We do. In our hearts we know. But it's also evident from scripture because the Bible itself says it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. So, so it's evident from Scripture. In fact, John says in 1 John chapter, chapter 1 and verse 8 that if anyone says he has no sin, he is self-deceived. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So the Bible is very clear that we ourselves are sinners, that we ourselves sin, and then our experience tells us that. We look in the mirror, we look in our hearts... And we know. Now, sometimes we try to mask our failures by focusing on the failures of others. Sometimes we want to point to other people and want want to point to how bad they are. We might do this with the president. 
or with people in our community that are into drugs or alternative lifestyles. We might want to point to others around us, even in the church, that don't quite measure up to our standards or whose defects are very apparent. But all of that is a mask to cover up our own failures. The fact of the matter is, all of sin and come short of the glory of God. There's no, none good, no, not one. If we think we haven't sinned, we deceive ourselves, and we are no better than anyone else sitting next to us, behind us, in front of us, or in our community, or anywhere else in the world. We're all completely lost. That's the bottom line. So now that we're all in the same boat together, none of us need to be critical of anyone else, but all of us are admonished, encouraged to help one another in this journey. And the help that we need is the help that Paul is bringing to the Galatians. The help is to point our hearts to Jesus, to point our hearts to Christ. So Paul is basically saying in Galatians, it's absolutely evident both in our experience and from the word of God that none of us has or can produce perfect obedience. There's only one man in the world who's ever perfectly obeyed, and that man is Jesus Christ. All right, so Paul's talking to the Galatians now, and he's using this evidence. But now he's quoting from the Old Testament again. He quotes from Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse 4. Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse 4, and this is in Galatians 3.11, the last part where he says, The righteous shall live by faith. Habakkuk actually wrote, and I'm quoting it now, But the righteous person will live by his faithfulness. And that has been a phrase that is very popular with Paul, but it's also been a phrase that's been misunderstood. The righteous person will live by his faithfulness. More clearly, the righteous person will live by Christ's faithfulness. Christ has been faithful. And the righteous person will live by Christ's faithfulness. Sometimes we, when we quote that, the righteous will live by faith. Or the righteous will live by his faith. We think about our faith. Like we're going to live by our faith. But Paul's not actually referring to that here. He's referring to the fact that we live by the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, by his faithfulness to the law. That's how we have life. Because we have no faith when it comes to this obedience. We fall short even in that area. That's why in Ephesians 2 it says that we're saved by grace through faith, not of ourselves. It is the gift of God. And it's referring not to grace but also to faith. Faith is the gift of God. He is the author and finisher of our faith. God gives us this gift of faith. He gives to every man a measure of faith. Every man, every woman, every child are given a measure of faith from God. And where is that faith found? In Jesus, in his faithfulness to us. He exercises faith toward us, and we accept that as a gift, and that transforms our hearts. So this is a better translation. Because the only way we can conquer, the only way we can really overcome, is through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. He's always ever faithful, faithful, faithful. And we accept that, and that transforms our hearts. It gives us hope. For the future, it gives us hope. It helps us to know that that we have someone who, who has accomplished the very needs that we have, the very righteousness that we need. So in Galatians 3.12, he says, again, the law is not based on faith. On the contrary, it says the person who does these things will live by them. The law says you have to perfectly obey. That's not faith. That's, that's tangible, practical. Get your list and mark it up and make sure you're doing all these things. That's what the law says. But we live by faith or the faithfulness of Jesus. That's how we survive. 
Because when we look in the mirror in the morning and we look in the mirror in the evening, we see people who have failed miserably. When we see our hearts, we recognize that we don't have the love of Christ, but we survive by his faithfulness. He was faithful. He was faithful. He was faithful again and again and again. And he gives us that as a gift. And he gives us that as a gift. And over the years, months, weeks, years, we finally come to the realization that we can fully trust in the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. And the more that we rely on that, the more it has its place in our hearts. And you'll find yourself doing this as you grow, as you mature as a Christian. When I first became a Christian, it was all about, okay, this is the truth. I've got to tell my mom, and I've got to tell my, my dad, and I've got to tell everyone else that I know. All my friends need to know what day they're supposed to be going to church and what the prophecies mean. And all these doctrines, they need to know all this stuff. And as I've grown in my experience, I found that the, the thing that God has really impressed in my mind and my heart is, I'm saved by grace. And everyone needs grace. The whole world is in agony, is, is weighed down by guilt. And I've got to be able to share with people that they can be free from all this guilt by the grace of God. Give me opportunities to love people unconditionally. Give me opportunities to show people how they too can experience what I've experienced in the Savior, my Savior, Jesus Christ. And the doctrines will follow that. The doctrines will connect with that because the Sabbath reminds me that I'm resting in the doing and dying of Jesus. You see, every doctrine that we have connects with this wonderful gospel truth of the love of God, of the grace of God that people need desperately. Yes, we need to tell them about all these doctrines, but those doctrines will be meaningless unless we can connect them with that person, Jesus Christ, who can lift their guilt. We can't even lift their guilt. All we can do is direct them to Jesus. And every time you have an encounter with someone that is negative or challenging, it's another opportunity for us to reveal the grace of God. That's why James says in chapter 1, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. Count it all joy because it gives you an opportunity to taste of God's grace and to reveal that grace to others. Paul counted all joy too. So what Paul is saying here basically is if we want to be saved by the law, we are going to come to the law, and we're going to say to the law, Law, we believe in every single commandment that you've given us, and we're going to do it. Everything you said we're going to do. That's the only way you can be saved by the law. And then you need to do it. See, the Jews believed. They believed in the writings of, of, of the Torah. They believed the first five books. They believed in the law. And many Christians today believe in the Ten Commandments, okay? So, so, but the fact that we believe in the Ten Commandments, or the fact that we believe in the law, the fact that we believe in the Torah, the fact that we believe in the Bible, doesn't make us any more saved than the person who doesn't, than the atheist, than the agnostic, than, than the Muslim, than anyone else out there in the world. Knowing that doesn't save us. And sometimes we think and get self-deceived into thinking that because we have all this knowledge, we're better than or in a different position than the rest of the world. We're not. We're just as lost as everyone else. In fact, we may be more lost because sometimes our intellectual understanding of truth becomes a barricade around us that, that causes us to, to be impenetra- impenetrable to the grace of God and the love of God that we really need. Because we, we settle ourselves into this intellectual truth and we think, oh, we're good. We're better than everyone else. And there are a lot of people in this world who they don't know what we know and they don't believe what we believe or they don't practice what we practice, but they know that they're miserable sinners and they just need God's grace. That's what they know. And that's what we need to know. That's what every single person needs to know. And so Paul is bringing this home here to, the, to their hearts. 
He tells them basically that the moment that we believe in Jesus Christ, we are no longer looked upon as God as sinners, but by faith we are declared righteous. And the righteousness of Christ is imputed to us, and this righteousness is perfect. But the moment we try to save ourselves by the law, all of our faith is meaningless because the law doesn't justify us by faith. The law justifies us by perfect, persistent, continual obedience. That's the only way we're going to make it by the law. You've got to be perfect, you've got to be consistent, and you've got to be obedient from the moment you wake up to the moment you go to sleep and all through the night. Every thought you have, every dream you have, everything you do has got to be perfect. And so we can't marry the two. We can't go to Christ to get forgiveness for being imperfect and then go back and try to be perfect again and go back and forth and back and forth. God wants us to choose this day whom we're going to serve. We're going to serve the law. We're going to serve Christ by faith. We're going to accept his gift of salvation, the little babe in Bethlehem who was born to us to give us this righteousness, or we're going to try to work it out on our own and be good people by ourselves and without him. If we're trying to work it out on our own and be good without Christ, we are in no different position than the atheists, let's say, because atheists are good people. Atheists are good people. They do good things. In fact, a lot of atheists would say of Christians, I'm a better Christian than they am. I'm a better person than they are. I live a better life. I have high moral standards. I don't want anything to do with that hypocrisy, that Christian hypocrisy, because those guys don't even, they don't even care about people the way I care about people. That is another form of doing it by the works of the law. And at some point, every human being on planet Earth is going to come to the realization that they're actually not good people. We can be good some of the time. We can be good a lot of the time. But the fact of the matter is this in the inmost soul, we are completely corrupt and selfish. Selfishness, the slime of selfishness completely controls this heart without Jesus Christ. And even when he comes in, there's more of it that he uh, discovers to us as we can bear it. I don't know if you've noticed that. But over and over again, he shows us more of ourselves. And again, we have this hope. And this hope is in Jesus Christ. So as far as the law is concerned, every one of us has failed miserably. Paul reminds us of that in Romans chapter 3, for example, 22 and 23, where he says, there's no difference between the Jew and the Gentile. I'm just going to say it in our language, between believers and unbelievers between Christians and non-Christians, between Adventists and the rest. There's no difference between Adventists and the rest of the world. There's no difference for all have sinned, past tense, and all fall short, present tense continually, all continue to fall short of the glory of God. That's, that's Romans 3, 22 and 23. So Paul tells the Galatians in 3, 13, Christ has redeemed us from this curse of the law because he became a curse for us. Here, here's where it get, gets a little bit um, personal. And I pray that God will touch our hearts here. Christ redeemed us because he became a curse for us, Paul says, because as it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. Now, when God created mankind, when God created Adam and Eve and placed him under the law, the moment Adam and Eve sinned, the moment they fell they became guilty before God. And every one of us who've been born of Adam and Eve have added to that initial fall our own personal sins. All of that leads us to a place where we cannot redeem ourselves from this curse. And the curse, again, being the guilt in practical terms. We're under the condemnation of the guilt 
of the law, breaking the law. So we're kind of like born on death row, if you will, if you can imagine that. And, and in a sense, we're hopelessly lost without Christ, no matter what we do, no matter what we try to do, okay? But in spite of this predicament, we have this um, unconditional good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, who has redeemed us from this curse of the law, and then Paul quotes Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 23, and he says, you must not, excuse me, who has redeemed us from the curse of the law being made a curse for us because cursed is everyone that hangs on a tree. And then he's quoting Deuteronomy 21, 23. You must not leave a body hanging on a pole overnight because be sure to bury it on the same day because anyone who is hung on a pole is under God's curse. So Paul is quoting from Deuteronomy 21, 23, and he's saying basically that Jesus Christ became a curse for us in that he was hung on a tree. What does he mean by that? Well, let's, let's open this up just a little bit. Um, we need to look, first of all, in John chapter 19, verse 5 and part of 6. Um, when Jesus is being tried by Pilate, he comes out wearing a crown of thorns. He comes out wearing a purple robe. And Pilate says to them, behold the man. In other words, this is enough. This is enough. I don't want to punish him anymore. And as soon as the chief priests and the officials saw Jesus, they shouted, crucify him, crucify him. Now, this is really a strange demand from the Jews. And the reason why is because the cross was not a Jewish form of punishment. It was actually um, fabricated, created by the Phoenicians and borrowed by the Egyptians and then perfected by the Romans. And it was used to, to punish runaway slaves um, as well as others. But the Jews never actually practiced crucifixion. It wasn't a Jewish method. It wasn't something that God had given to them. And yet here we find the Jews when Jesus comes out from Pilate saying, crucify him. Put him on a, put him on a, put him on a pole. Put him on a tree. Put him on a cross. Crucify him. And by the way, pole, a tree, a cross, it's all synonymous um, in the Bible. So what did they have in mind when they were crying out, crucify him? What, what was the reason and the reason is found in John chapter 19, verse 6 um, and verse 7. But Pilate answered, and he said unto them, You take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis of a charge against him. And the Jewish leaders insisted, We have a law, and according to the law, he must die because he claimed to be the Son of God. He claimed to be the Son of God. Now, when the Jews answered Pilate, who represented Rome, who found no fault in Jesus. They, their reason for Jesus being crucified was that according to our law, he ought to because he made himself the son of God. But the law that the Jews were referring to was the law of blasphemy, which is found in Leviticus chapter 24 and verse 16. And according to the law of blasphemy, a person who commits blasphemy wasn't supposed to be hung on a pole or a tree or a cross, a person who committed blasphemy was supposed to be what? Anyone know? Stoned. They're supposed to be stoned to death. In fact, this happened several times in, in Christ's life. Um, the law stipulated death for blasphemy through stoning. 
And there were several times during Christ's ministry when Christ claimed to be one with the Father and the the Jews took up stones to stone him and he disappeared out uh, out of their sight. Again and again this happened. So I want you to follow this closely because this is really amazing. This means that when the Jews cried out, crucify him, they had a reason, which is given by Paul, where he quotes Deuteronomy 21.23. Now, here's what, Paul, what Deuteronomy 21.23 says. You must not leave a body hanging on the pole overnight. Be sure to bury that body the same day, because anyone who is hung on a pole is under God's curse. You must not desecrate the land, excuse me, the land of the Lord your God, is giving you as an inheritance. Anyone who is hung on a pole is under God's curse. See, the Jews didn't believe in the immortality of the soul. If someone blasphemed God, they were to be stoned. But if they were brought before the judge and they were getting ready to be stoned, they could fall on their knees and they could ask for forgiveness. And even someone who blasphemed God, who was stoned to death, could be forgiven at the last moment. But... If you were hung on a pole or a tree, that was impossible. In the Jewish mindset, to be hung on a pole or a tree meant that you had committed the unpardonable sin, that you could not be forgiven. You would not have the opportunity to fall on your knees and ask for forgiveness at the last minute. And so when the Jews are referring to Pilate, they're referring to the cross and for Christ to be crucified, they are basically saying, this man has committed blasphemy. He's committed the unpardonable sin. He is cursed of God. There is no opportunity for him to come back from the grave, to be resurrected, to be forgiven. There's no opportunity. It is second death. He is finished. That's what the Jews are saying of Christ. And the reason why I think that is so important is because that's exactly the experience that Jesus Christ was suffering for our sins. He was to take on the ultimate consequence of the sins of the world. That's why when the apostles preached the gospel, they over and over again would use the the term, not the term the cross. They wouldn't use the term the cross. They would use the term, the, the, they would use the term tree. Um, let me just give you a few examples. Acts 5.30, the God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed and hung on a tree. Acts 10.39, we are witnesses of everything he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They killed him by hanging him on a tree. Acts 13.29, And when they had carried out all that was written about him, they took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb. Excuse me. Took him down from the tree and laid him in the tomb. And I'm reading the King James Version here. Um, And 1 Peter 2.24, He himself bore our sins, his body on the tree, so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. So, So these statements were made by... The Jews, the, the, the disciples of Christ, fellow Jews of Christ. And again and again, they referred to the fact that Christ was hung on a tree. Christ was hung on a tree. Christ was hung on a tree. He was a blasphemer. He should have been stoned to death. And at the last minute, he could ask for forgiveness. But because he was hung on a tree, in the Jewish mindset, that meant he was cursed of God. There was no way that he could be forgiven. He was saying goodbye to life forever. That was inferring in the apostles' mindset that Jesus Christ died the ultimate death for our sins. The ultimate death for sin, from which there is no resurrection. He tasted that death for us. So, it's interesting really because 
when you look at Isaiah 53, and this is probably the most controversial um, chapter of the Bible for the Jews, for the Hebrews, because Isaiah 53 points out the prophetically the death of Jesus Christ for the sins of the world so clearly that it's hard to get out of it. And, and I recently was talking to someone who said that, that the way the Jews explain this, it's really interesting, I don't have time to go into it now, but they try to explain these texts away to refer to something or to someone other than Jesus Christ. But if you read through this text, it's really interesting how it reads here. It says in um, Isaiah 53, verse 4, let me just find the verse here. Surely he took upon he surely he took upon took up our pain and bore our suffering yet we considered him punished by god stricken by him and afflicted now that's isaiah 53 verse 3 surely he took upon him out took upon himself our pain our suffering but we considered him punished by god that was the jewish mindset the jews thought that jesus was being punished by god but but it goes on to say um Verse 6, uh, excuse me, verse 5 of Isaiah 53. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. So I just want to clarify this because this is really important. Sometimes when you read Isaiah 53, you'll think that I, verse 3 is saying that we thought he was afflicted of God. But he wasn't. But verses 5 and 6 clarify that, yes, he was. I'm actually um, reading here verses 5 and 6, so I should be going back to verse 4, I believe it is. Let me just check my Bible because I've got uh, my notes here. And those are different from Isaiah 53. And verse 4. Surely he is born on griefs and carried our sorrows, but we thought he was stricken of God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. The Jews thought he was afflicted of God because he was a blasphemer. But it doesn't mean that he wasn't afflicted of God. He was, but he was bruised for our sins and our iniquities, not because he was a blasphemer. Jesus Christ was perfect. He was not afflicted. He did not bear the curse of God. He did not bear the consequences of our disobedience because... He was disobedient. He bore the consequences of our disobedience because we were disobedient. The Jews thought that he was bearing that consequence because he blasphemed by claiming to be one with God. That's what the verse is saying. But the verse is not saying that he didn't bear our consequences. The verse is saying he bore our consequences, but he was not afflicted of God because he was a blasphemer. He was afflicted of God because he took upon himself our sins and our iniquities. That's why he was afflicted of God. He bore our guilt, and with his stripes we are healed, healed, not perfect and obedient to all the precepts of the law, healed. We have healing that takes place in our hearts. We begin to love as God loved. We begin to love people as God loves people. We're healed. Okay, back to my notes. So when Jesus died on the cross, he wasn't just experiencing physical torture. It was more than that. One writer actually says, and this is in Desire of Ages, his physical suffering was hardly felt. When you look at a movie, like if you ever watched The Passion of Christ by Mel Gibson, I think it's a billion-dollar um, seller. 
The Passion of Christ focuses on the physical suffering. I watched an interview with the guy that played Jesus in that movie, and he said there were a couple of times in the, in the, in the movie when they were doing things like one time they were whipping him, and they had a, uh, some kind of metal plate be- between him and the whip. And one of the times the, um, the guy that was doing the whipping went extended too far, and one of the whips hit him, and it, pulled, it, it put a gash in him, a 14-inch gash in his skin. And he immediately went to the ground in agony. Another time when he was carrying the cross, his shoulder was dislocated. He actually felt some of the pain accidentally as he was shooting the movie. And he was also hit by lightning during that movie. He had to have heart surgery after that movie was over. He had to have, go in and have heart surgery, surgery. I guess that's what happens when you try to play Jesus, right? So through all of that physical agony, that agony, that physical pain was hardly felt by Christ because of the emotional agony he was going through. So I want to share this with you. Christ bore the emotional pain that we bear. A lot of us today, we look at the third world countries, look at people in Muslim countries that are suffering physically, uh, persecution physically, and we think, oh, that's terrible. But the fact of the matter is, it's something even greater, a greater weight than that is what we bear, the emotional pain that we bear in our own hearts. The emotional pain that comes from isolation from brothers and sisters, from alienation from family and friends. The emotional baggage that we bear because of the way uh, life has dealt, the cards life has dealt us. All of these things, this emotional pain, this is what Christ bore even more than the physical pain. He bore the emotional pain that we carry on our hearts. And he wants to heal us from that. With his stripes, we're healed from all of that. How does that take place? Well, that's another sermon. And so Christ is on the cross, and he's feeling that that emotional pain. He's feeling forsaken, not just by his brothers and sisters and his disciples. He's feeling forsaken by God himself. And he was forsaken so that we would not have to be forsaken. He felt God separating from him so that we would never have to feel God separating from us. And we don't have to ever feel God separating from us, ever. As long as we believe And trust in Jesus and not in ourselves for salvation. So this was the cup. This was the curse. This was what Jesus Christ was bearing for us. And this is what he's redeemed us from. He's redeemed us from the curse of the law. He becoming a curse for us. So it's my prayer this morning and it's my hope this morning that each one of us will look to Christ and not to ourselves. That each one of us will be free from the curse of the law. Free from spiritual treason. Thinking that we have to be perfect. If we're not perfect, we go back to Jesus. We get forgiveness. And then we go back and we try to be perfect. If we're not perfect, we go back to Jesus and try to get forgiveness. No, we need to stay right over here with Jesus Christ. Why? Well, let me just share with you in closing this one statement from Ellen White, 1888 Materials, page 816. 1888 Materials, page 816. 816. If you would gather together... Everything that is good and everything that is holy and everything that is noble and lovely in man and then present the subject to the angels of God as acting a part in the salvation of the human soul or in merit, the proposition would be rejected as treason. This isn't the bad stuff. This is the good stuff. Everything noble, everything holy, and everything good. You just take all the good stuff and you present it to the angels of heaven as having a little part in our salvation. 
and they would consider that to be treason, spiritual treason, spiritual treason. We are saved in the doing and the dying of Jesus Christ alone. We do not have to bear the weight of the law, the curse of the law, any longer. We're free. And in that freedom, we can love and accept others. We can be gracious toward others because we have a Savior who saved us. Amen? Please join us in our closing song. Oh, holy night, the stars are brightly shining. It is the night of our dear Savior's birth.
We want to thank you for that night divine. We want to thank you for the gift of Jesus. We want to thank you for his perfect righteousness, his perfect life that replaces our sinful one and his perfect death that satisfies the requires the just requirements of the law in our place. And we want to accept that again anew this morning. I want to accept it personally, and I want to pray and ask that every single one of us would accept that gift again, especially as we enter into this holiday season. We think about the child that was born not in a mansion, not in an ordinary house, not even in a hotel room, but in a stable in a barn. That he was born to reach us at our lowest estate. He was born in a barn and had no place to lay his head, that he was homeless, and yet his heart was filled with one mission and one purpose, to save us from our sins. Thank you for this wonderful gift. Thank you for his great love for us. Please, Father, may we accept it, and may it flow out through us to others, is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. We have a fellowship meal today? Yes? Do we? Yes. And you're invited to stay and enjoy the fellowship meal with us. God bless you.